Chapter Twenty Four of the Alhambra: A Series of Tales and Sketches of the Moors and Spaniards by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four: Legend of Prince Almed Al Kamal or the Pilgrim of Love, Part One. There was once a Moorish king of Granada who had but one son, whom he named Ahmed, to which his courtiers added the surname of Al-Kamel, or the Perfect, from the indubitable signs of super-excellence which they perceived in him in his very infancy. The astrologers countenanced them in their foresight, predicting everything in his favor that could make a perfect prince and a prosperous sovereign. One cloud only rested upon his destiny, and even that was of a roseate hue. He would be of an amorous temperament, and run great perils from the tender passion. If, however, he could be kept from the allurements of love, until of mature age, these dangers would be averted, and his life thereafter be one uninterrupted course of felicity. To prevent all danger of the kind, the king wisely determined to rear the prince in a seclusion where he should never see a female face, nor hear even the name of love. For this purpose he built a beautiful palace on the brow of a hill above the Alhambra, in the midst of delightful gardens, but surrounded by lofty walls, being, in fact, the same palace known at the present day by the name of the Henralif. In this palace the youthful prince was shut up and entrusted to the guardianship and instruction of Ivan Bonabam, one of the wisest and driest of Arabian sages, who had passed the greatest part of his life in Egypt studying hieroglyphics and making researches among the tombs and pyramids, and who saw more charms in an Egyptian mummy than in the most tempting of living beauties. The sage was ordered to instruct the prince in all kinds of knowledge but one. He is to be kept utterly ignorant of love. Use every precaution for the purpose you may think proper, said the king, but remember, O Ibn Bonaban, if my son learns aught of that forbidden knowledge, while under your care, your head shall answer for it. A withered smile came over the dry visage of the wise Bonabon at the menace. Let your majesty's heart be as easy about your son as mine is about my head. Am I a man likely to give lessons in the idle passion? Under the vigilant care of the philosopher, the prince grew up in the seclusion of the palace and its gardens. He had black slaves to attend upon him, hideous mutes, who knew nothing of love, or if they did, had not words to communicate it. His mental endowments were the peculiar care of Ivan Bonaban, who sought to initiate him into the abstruse lore of Egypt but in this the prince made little progress, and it was soon evident that he had no turn for philosophy. He was, however, amazingly ductile for a youthful prince, ready to follow any advice and always guided by the last counsellor. 
he suppressed his yawns, and listened patiently to the long and learned discourses of Ebon Bonabbon, from which he imbibed a smattering of various kinds of knowledge, and thus happily attained his twentieth year, a miracle of princely wisdom, but totally ignorant of love. About this time, however, a change came over the conduct of the prince. He completely abandoned his studies, and took to strolling about the gardens, and musing by the side of the fountains. He had been taught a little music among his various accomplishments. It now engrossed a great part of his time, and a turn for poetry became apparent. The sage Ebon Bonabon took the alarm, and endeavoured to work these idle humours out of him by a severe course of algebra. But the prince turned from it with distaste. I cannot endure algebra, said he. It is an abomination to me. I want something that speaks uh, more to the heart. The sage Ebon Bonabon shook his dry head at the words. Here's an end to philosophy, thought he. The prince has discovered he has a heart. He now kept anxious watch upon his pupil, and saw that the latest tenderness of his nature was in activity, and only wanted an object. He wandered about the gardens of the Henrelief in an intoxication of feelings of which he knew not the cause. Sometimes he would sit plunged in a delicious reverie, then he would seize his lute and draw from it the most touching notes, and then throw it aside and break forth into sighs and ejaculations. By degrees this loving disposition began to extend to inanimate objects. He had his favorite flowers which he cherished with tender assiduity. Then he became attached to various trees, and there was one in particular of a graceful form and drooping foliage, on which he lavished his amorous devotion, carving his name on its bark, hanging garlands on its branches, and singing couplets in its praise to the accompaniment of his lute. The sage Ebon Bonabon was alarmed at this excited state of his pupil. He saw him on the very brink of forbidden knowledge. The least hint might reveal to him the fatal secret. Trembling for the safety of the prince and the security of his own head, he hastened to draw him from the seductions of the garden and shut him up in the highest tower of a Henrelief. It contained beautiful apartments and commanded an almost boundless prospect but was elevated far above that atmosphere of sweets and those witching bowers so dangerous to the feelings of the too susceptible Ahmed. What was to be done, however, to reconcile him to this restraint and to beguile the tedious hours? He had exhausted almost all kinds of agreeable knowledge, and algebra was not to be mentioned. Fortunately, Ibn Bonabon had been instructed, when in Egypt, in the language of birds, by a Jewish babin, who had received it in lineal transmission from Solomon the Wise, who had been taught by the Queen of Sheba. At the very mention of such a study, the eyes of the prince sparkled with animation, and he applied himself to it with such avidity 
that he soon became as great an adept as his master. The tower of the Henrilife was no longer a solitude. He had companions at hand with whom he could converse. The first acquaintance he formed was with a hawk, who had built his nest in a crevice of the lofty battlements, from whence he soared far and wide in quest of prey. The prince, however, found little to like or esteem in him. He was a mere pirate of the air, swaggering and boastful, whose talk was all about rapine and carnage and desperate exploits. His next acquaintance was an owl, a mighty, wise-looking bird, with a large head and staring eyes, who sat blinking and goggling all day in a hole in the wall, but roamed forth at night. He had great pretensions to wisdom, talked something of astrology and the moon, and hinted at the dark sciences, but he was grievously given to metaphysics, and the prince found his prosings were more ponderous than those of the sage Ebon Bonabon. Then there was a bat that hung all day by his heels in the dark corner of a vault, but sallied out in a slipshod style at twilight. He, however, had but twilight ideas on all subjects, derided things of which he had taken but an imperfect view, and seemed to take delight in nothing. Beside these there was a swallow with whom the prince was at first much taken. He was a smart talker, but restless, bustling, and forever on the wing, seldom remaining long enough for any continued conversation. He turned out, in the end, to be a mere smatterer, who did but skim over the surface of things, pretending to know everything, but knowing nothing thoroughly. These were the only feathered associates with whom the prince had any opportunity of exercising his newly acquired language. The tower was too high for any other birds to frequent it. He soon grew weary of his new acquaintances, whose conversation spake so little to the head and nothing to the heart, and gradually relapsed into his loneliness. A winter passed away, spring opened with all its bloom and verdure and breathing sweetness, and the happy time arrived for birds to pair and build their nests. Suddenly, as it were, a universal burst of song and melody broke forth from the groves and gardens of the Henrilif, and reached the prince in the solitude of his tower. From every side he heard the same universal theme, love, 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 chanted forth and responded to in every variety of note and tone. The prince listened in silence and perplexity. What can be this love, thought he, of which the world seems so full, and of which I know nothing? He applied for information to his friend the hawk. The ruffian bird answered in a tone of scorn, You must apply, said he, to the vulgar, peaceable birds of earth, who are made for the prey of us princes of the air. My trade is war, and fighting my delight. In a word, I am a warrior, 
and know nothing of this thing called uh, love the prince turned from him with disgust and sought the owl in his retreat this is a bird said he of peaceful habits and may be able to solve my question so he asked the owl to tell him what was this love about which all the birds in the groves below were singing upon this the owl put on a look of offended dignity my knights said he are taken up in study and research and my days in ruminating in myself upon all that i have learnt as to these singing birds of whom you talk i never listen to them i despise them and their themes allah be praised i cannot sing in a word i am a philosopher and know nothing of this thing called love the prince now repaired to the vault where his friend the bat was hanging by the heels and propounded the same question the bat wrinkled up his nose into a most snappish expression why do you disturb me in the morning's nap with such an idle question said he peevishly i only fly by twilight when all birds are asleep and never trouble myself with their concerns i am neither bird nor beast and i thank heaven for it i have found out the villainy of the whole of them and hate them one and all in a word i am a misanthrope and know nothing of this thing called love as a last resort the prince now sought the swallow and stopped him just as he was circling about the summit of the tower the swallow as usual was in a prodigious hurry and had scarce time to make reply upon my word said he i have so much public business to attend to and so many pursuits to follow that i've had no time to think on the subject i have every day a thousand visits to pay a thousand affairs of importance to examine into that leave me not a moment of leisure for these little sing-song matters in a word i am a citizen of the world i know nothing of this thing called love so saying the swallow dived into the valley and was out of sight in a moment the prince remained disappointed and perplexed but with his curiosity still more piqued by the difficulty of gratifying it while in this mood his ancient guardian entered the tower the prince advanced eagerly to meet him o oh, sage ebon bonabon cried he thou hast revealed to me much of the wisdom of the earth but there is one thing of which i remain in utter ignorance and would fain be informed my prince has but to make the inquiry and everything within the limited range of his servant's intellect is at his command tell me then o oh, most profound of sages what is the nature of this thing called love the sage ebon bonabon was struck as with a thunderbolt he trembled and turned pale and felt as if his head sat but loosely on his shoulders. What could suggest such a question to my prince? 
where could he have learnt so idle a word ? The prince led him to the window of the tower. " Listen, O Ebon Bonabbon !" said he. The sage listened. The nightingale sat in a thicket below the tower, singing to his paramour, the rose. From every blossomed spray and tufted grove arose a strain of melody and love. Love ! love ! was still the unvarying theme. " Allah Achbar ! God is great !" exclaimed the wise Bonabbon. " Who shall pretend to keep this secret from the hearts of men, when even the birds of the air conspire to betray it ?" Then turning to Ahmed, " O my prince," cried he, " shut thine ears to these seductive strains, close thy mind against this dangerous knowledge. Know that this love is the cause of half the ills of wretched mortality. It is this which produces bitterness of strife between brethren and friends, which causes treacherous murder and desolating war. Care and sorrow, weary days and sleepless nights are its attendants. It withers the bloom and blights the joys of youth, and brings on the ills and griefs of premature old age. Allah preserve thee, my prince, in total ignorance of this thing called love." The sage Ebon Bonabbon hastily retired, leaving the prince plunged in still deeper perplexity. It was in vain he attempted to dismiss the subject from his mind. It still continued uppermost in his thoughts, and teased and exhausted him with vain conjectures. Surely, said he to himself, as he listened to the tuneful strains of the birds, there is no sorrow in these notes. Everything seems tenderness and joy. If love be a cause of such wretchedness and strife, why are not these birds drooping in solitude, or tearing each other in pieces, instead of fluttering cheerfully about the groves, or sporting with each other among the flowers? He lay one morning on his couch, meditating on this inexplicable matter. The window of his chamber was open to admit the soft morning breeze, which came laden with the perfume of orange blossoms from the valley of the Daro. The voice of the nightingale was faintly heard, still chanting the wonted theme. As the prince was listening and sighing, there was a sudden rushing noise in the air. A beautiful dove, pursued by a hawk, darted in at the window and fell panting on the floor, while the pursuer, balked of his prey, soared off to the mountains. The prince took up the gasping bird, smoothed its feathers, and nestled it in his bosom. When he had soothed it by his caresses, he put it in a golden cage and offered it with his own hands the whitest and finest of wheat and the purest of water. The bird, however, refused food, and sat drooping and pining and uttering piteous moans. What aileth thee? said Ahmed. Hast thou not everything thy heart can wish? Alas, no, replied the dove. Am I not separated from the partner of my heart? 
and that, too, in the happy spring time, the very season of love !" "Of love!" echoed Ahmed. "I pray thee, my pretty bird, canst thou then tell me what is love ?"" Too well can I, my prince ; it is the torment of one, the felicity of two, the strife and enmity of three. It is a charm which draws two beings together, and unites them by delicious sympathies, making it happiness to be with each other, but misery to be apart. Is there no being to whom you are drawn by these ties of tender affection ? I like my old teacher, Ebon Bonabbon, better than any other being, but he is often tedious, and I occasionally feel myself happier without his society. Now that is not the sympathy I mean. I speak of love, the great mystery and principle of life, the intoxicating revel of youth, the sober delight of age. Look forth, my prince, and behold how at this blessed season all nature is full of love. Every created being has its mate. The most insignificant bird sings to its paramour. The very beetle woos its lady beetle in the dust, and yon butterflies, which you see fluttering high above the tower and toying in the air, are happy in each other's love. Alas, my prince, hast thou spent so many of the previous days of youth without knowing anything of love? Is there no gentle being of another sex, no beautiful princess, or lovely damsel who has ensnared your heart and filled your bosom with a soft tumult of pleasing pains and tender wishes? I begin to understand, said the prince, sighing. Such a tumult I have more than once experienced without knowing the cause. And where should I seek for an object such as you describe in this dismal solitude? A little further conversation ensued, and the first amatory lesson of the prince was complete. Alas, said he, if love be indeed such a delight, and its interruption such a misery, Allah forbid that I should mar the joy of any of its votaries. He opened the cage, took out the dove, and having fondly kissed it, carried it to the window. Go, happy bird, said he, rejoice with the partner of thy heart in the days of youth and springtime. Why should I make thee a fellow prisoner in this dreary tower, where love can never enter? The dove flapped its wings in rapture, gave one vault into the air, and then swooped downward on whistling wings to the blooming bowers of the darrow. The prince followed him with his eyes, and then gave way to bitter repining. The singing of the birds, which once delighted him, now added to his bitterness. Love! 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 Alas, poor youth! He now understood the strain. His eyes flashed fire when next he beheld the sage Bonabon. Why hast thou kept me in this abject ignorance? cried he.
why has the great mystery and principle of life been withheld from me, in which I find the meanest insect is so learned ? Behold, all nature is in a revel of delight ; every created being rejoices with its mate. This, this is the love about which I have sought instruction. Why am I alone debarred from its enjoyment ? Why hast so much of my youth been wasted without a knowledge of its rapture ? The sage Bonabbon saw that all further reserve was useless, for the prince had acquired the dangerous and forbidden knowledge. He revealed to him, therefore, the predictions of the astrologers, and the precautions that had been taken in his education to avert the threatened evils. And now, my prince, added he, my life is in your hands. Let the king your father discover that you have learned the passion of love while under my guardianship, and my head must answer for it. The prince was as reasonable as most young men of his age, and easily listened to the remonstrances of his tutor, since nothing pleaded against them. Beside, he really was attached to the sage Bonabon, and being as yet but theoretically acquainted with the passion of love, he consented to confine the knowledge of it to his own bosom, rather than endanger the head of the philosopher. His discretion was doomed, however, to be put to still further proofs. A few mornings afterwards, as he was ruminating on the battlements of the tower, the dove, which had been released by him, came hovering in the air, and alighted fearlessly upon his shoulder. The prince fondled it to his breast. "'Happy bird!' said he who can fly, as it were, with the wings of the morning to the uttermost parts of the earth. Where hast thou been since we parted? In a far country, my prince, from whence I bring you tidings in reward for my liberty. In the wide compass of my flight, which extends over plain and mountain, as I was soaring in the air, I beheld below me a delightful garden, with all kinds of fruits and flowers. It was in a green meadow on the banks of a meandering stream, and in the centre of the garden was a stately palace. I alighted in one of the bowers to repose after my weary flight. On the green bank below me was a youthful princess in the very sweetness and bloom of her years. She was surrounded by female attendants, young like herself, who decked her with garlands and coronets of flowers. But no flower of field or garden could compare with her for loveliness. Here, however, she bloomed in secret, for the garden was surrounded by high walls, and no mortal man was permitted to enter. When I beheld this beauteous maid, thus young and innocent and unspotted by the world, I thought, here is the being formed by heaven to inspire my prince with love. The description was as a spark of fire to the combustible heart of Ahmed. All the latent amorousness of his temperament had at once found an object, and he conceived an immeasurable passion 
for the princess. He wrote a letter couched in the most impassioned language, breathing his fervent devotion, but bewailing the unhappy thraldom of his person, which prevented him from seeking her out, and throwing himself at her feet. He added couplets of the most tender and moving eloquence, for he was a poet by nature, and inspired by love. He addressed his letter to the unknown beauty from the captive prince Ahmed. Then, perfuming it with musk and roses, he gave it to the dove. Away, trustiest of messengers, said he, fly over mountain and valley and river and plain, rest not in bower nor set foot on earth until thou hast given this letter to the mistress of my heart. The dove soared high in the air, and taking his course, darted away in one undeviating direction. The prince followed him with his eye until he was a mere speck on a cloud, and gradually disappeared behind a mountain. Day after day he watched for the return of the messenger of love, but he watched in vain. He began to accuse him of forgetfulness, when, toward sunset one evening, the faithful bird fluttered into his apartment, and, falling at his feet, expired. The arrow of some wanton archer had pierced his breast, yet he had struggled with the lingerings of life to execute his mission. As the prince bent with grief over this gentle martyr to fidelity, he beheld a chain of pearls round his neck, attached to which, beneath his wing, was a small enameled picture. It represented a lovely princess in the very flower of her years. It was doubtless the unknown beauty of the garden. But who and where was she? How had she received his letter? And was this picture sent as a token of an approval of his passion? Unfortunately, the death of the faithful dove left everything in mystery and doubt. The prince gazed on the picture till his eyes swam with tears. He pressed it to his lips and to his heart. He sat for hours contemplating it in an almost agony of tenderness. Beautiful image, said he, alas, thou art but an image. Yet thy dewy eyes beam tenderly upon me. Those rosy lips look as though they would speak encouragement. Vain fancies! Have they not looked the same on some more happy rival? But where in this wide world shall I hope to find the original? Who knows what mountains, what realms may separate us? What adverse chance may intervene? Perhaps now, even now, lovers may be crowding around her, while I sit here, a prisoner in a tower, wasting my time in adoration of a painted shadow. The resolution of Prince Ahmed was taken. I will fly from this palace, said he, which has become an odious prison, and a pilgrim of love will seek this unknown princess throughout the world. 
To escape from the tower in the day, when every one was awake, might be a difficult matter ; but at night the palace was slightly guarded, for no one apprehended any attempt of the kind from the prince, who had always been so passive in his captivity. How was he to guide himself, however, in his darkling flight, being ignorant of the country ? He bethought him of the owl, who was accustomed to roam at night, and must know every by lane and secret pass. Seeking him in his hermitage, he questioned him touching his knowledge of the land. Upon this the owl put on a mighty, self-important look. You must know, O prince, said he, that we owls are of a very ancient and extensive family, though rather fallen to decay, and possess ruinous castles and palaces in all parts of Spain. There is scarcely a tower of the mountains, or fortress of the plains, or an old citadel of a city, but has some brother or uncle or cousin quartered in it ; and in going the rounds to visit these my numerous kindred, I have pried into every nook and corner, and made myself acquainted with every secret of the land." The prince was overjoyed to find the owl so deeply versed in topography, and now informed him, in confidence, of his tender passion and his intended elopement, urging him to be his companion and counsellor. "'Go to!' said the owl, with a look of displeasure. "'Am I a bird to engage in a love affair? I, whose whole time is devoted to meditation and the moon?' "'Be not offended, most solemn owl,' replied the prince. Abstract thyself for a time from meditation and the moon, and aid me in my flight, and thou shalt have whatever heart can wish. I have that already, said the owl. A few mice are sufficient for my frugal table, and this hole in the wall is spacious enough for my studies. And what more does a philosopher like myself desire? Bethink thee, most wise owl, that while moping in thy cell and gazing at the moon, all thy talents are lost to the world. I shall one day be a sovereign prince, and may advance thee to some post of honour and dignity." The owl, though a philosopher, and above the ordinary wants of life, was not above ambition. So he was finally prevailed upon to elope with the prince, and be his guide and mentor in his pilgrimage. The plans of a lover are promptly executed. The prince collected all his jewels, and concealed them about his person as travelling funds. That very night he lowered himself by his scarf from a balcony of the tower, clambered over the outer walls of the Henrelief, and, guided by the owl, made good his escape before morning to the mountains. He now held a council with his mentor as to his future course. "'Might I advise,' said the owl, "'I would recommend you to repair to Seville. You must know that many years since I was on a visit to an uncle, 
an owl of great dignity and power, who lived in a ruined wing of the Alcazar of that place. In my hoverings at night over the city, I frequently remarked a light burning in a lonely tower. At length I alighted on the battlements, and found it to proceed from the lamp of an Arabian magician. He was surrounded by his magic books, and on his shoulder was perched his familiar, an ancient raven, who had come with him from Egypt. I became acquainted with that raven, and owe to him a great part of the knowledge I possess. The magician is since dead, but the raven still inhabits the tower, for these birds are of wonderful long life. I would advise you, O Prince, to seek that raven, for he is a soothsayer and a conjurer, and deals in the black art, for which all ravens, and especially those of Egypt, are renowned. The Prince was struck with the wisdom of this advice, and accordingly bent his course towards Seville. He travelled only in the night to accommodate his companion, and lay by during the day in some dark cavern or mouldering watch-tower, for the owl knew every hiding-hole of the kind in the country, and had a most antiquarian taste for ruins. At length, one morning at daybreak, they reached the city of Seville, where the owl, who hated the glare and bustle of crowded streets, halted without the gate, and took up his quarters in a hollow tree. The prince entered the gate, and readily found the magic tower which rose above the houses of the city as a palm-tree rises above the shrubs of the desert. It was, in fact, the same tower known at the present day as the Giralda, the famous Moorish tower of Seville. The prince ascended by a great winding staircase to the summit of the tower, where he found the cabalistic raven, an old, mysterious, grey-headed bird, ragged in feather, with a film over one eye, that gave him the glare of a spectre. He was perched on one leg, with his head turned on one side, and poring with his remaining eye on a diagram described on the pavement. The prince approached him with the awe and reverence naturally inspired by his venerable appearance and supernatural wisdom. "'Pardon me, most ancient and darkly wise raven,' exclaimed he, "'if for a moment I interrupt those studies which are the wonder of the world. You behold before you a votary of love, who would fain seek counsel how to obtain the object of his passion.' In other words, said the raven, with a significant look, you seek to try my skill and palmistry. Come, show me your hand, and let me decipher the mysterious lines of fortune. Um, excuse me, said the prince, I come not to pry into the decrees of fate, which are hidden by Allah from the eyes of mortals. I am a pilgrim of love, and seek but to find a clue to the object of my pilgrimage. And uh, can you be at any loss for an object in amorous Andalusia? said the old raven, leering upon him with his single eye. Above all, can you be at a loss in wanton Seville, 
where black-eyed damsels dance the zambra under every orange grove the prince blushed and was somewhat shocked at hearing an old bird with one foot in the grave talk thus loosely believe me said he gravely i am on none such light and vagrant errand as thou dost insinuate the black-eyed damsels of andalusia who dance among the orange groves of the guadalquivar are as naught to me i seek one unknown but immaculate beauty the original of this picture and i beseech thee most potent raven if it be within the scope of thy knowledge or the reach of thy art inform me where she may be found the grey-headed raven was rebuked by the gravity of the prince what know i replied he dryly of youth and beauty my visits are to the old and withered not the young and fair the harbinger of fate am i who croak bodings of death from the chimney-top and flap my wings at the sick man's window you must seek elsewhere for tidings of your unknown beauty and where am i to seek if not among the sons of wisdom versed in the book of destiny a royal prince am i fated by the stars and sent on a mysterious enterprise on which may hang the destiny of empires when the raven heard that it was a matter of vast moment in which the stars took interest he changed his tone and manner and listened with profound attention to the story of the prince when it was concluded he replied touching this princess i can give thee no information of myself for my flight is not among gardens or around ladies bowers but hide de cordova seek the palm-tree of the great abderrahman which stands in the court of the principal mosque at the foot of it you will find a great traveller who has visited all countries and courts and been a favourite with queens and princesses he will give you tidings of the object of your search many thanks for this precious information said the prince farewell most venerable conjurer farewell pilgrim of love said the raven dryly and again fell to pondering on the diagram End of chapter 24, part 1